Well, good morning, church. What a sweet day. God is abundantly good, is he not? And what a joy to be here together, to worship God together. Um, this is one of those days that you just say, Lord, you are, are merciful, you are good, abounding in steadfast love. Before I begin, I'm going to call an audible. Um, can I have the elders come up to the, the platform? Ernie, Doug, and Phil, would you guys come up here? I'm going to tell you guys a story as they come up. Back in January in the providence of God, you guys come up on the platform here, come on. Yeah, come on up here. Back in January in the providence of God, I, I taught at a chapel at Victory Christian High School, which is where our brother Daniel Kirk teaches. And um, I had known he was attending this ministry, and we'd go way back, and he said to me, man, I'll grow Bibles looking for a pastor. And I had just had a conversation with my pastor a few weeks before that of, you know, I'm praying about where God's going to take me. I don't know what that's going to be, but I know he's taking me somewhere. And so I was praying with my pastor about what's that going to look like. God, what are you going to do? So I had this conversation with Daniel. I didn't know anybody here except Dante. I knew Dante. So we met for coffee at our favorite shop, Temple. And we grabbed coffee together, and I said, Dante, what's going on at Elk Grove? Tell me about it. That was Tuesday. Uh, by Friday, uh, which was January 27th, or I think it was Thursday, I got a call from one of you guys. I said, can you meet Friday afternoon? And I was like, oh, snap. That is quick. <laughs> I mean, I was just like, you know, shooting from the hip, like, is this what God's doing? And I'm going to meet with all these guys. And what happened, men, was I met with you, and I went home and said to my wife, these are the kind of men I want to serve Jesus with. Mm. True story. Amen. I said, I don't know what God's doing, but if God takes us to Elk Grove Bible, I will gladly serve alongside these men. Mm. And I know that today, amen. <laughs> amen. Today, this church is excited. There's a building. There's a new preaching and teaching pastor. But about a year and eight months ago, this church was ready to close down. And this was going to be a, a non-church. It was going to go away. And God raised up three men to shepherd this congregation. And I'm joining that team. All right? I'm not, I'm not replacing that team. I'm not in charge of that team. I'm just part of that team. And I praise God for these men. I do. I, my heart is overwhelmed with gratitude. Because you stepped in and, and at great cost to your own schedules, time, sleep, stress levels. I mean, you said <laughs> the gray hair, the baldness, whatever. You said, Lord, we are going to be faithful because we think that you have a work to do here. And so I want to pray right now and thank God for these brothers. Would you pray with me? Lord, you have done great things. There is no reason that, that Elk Grove Bible should be in existence. Um, from all human standards, they were, they were a ship without a rudder. And it was, it was going to fold. And you raised up Ernie, and you raised up Doug, and you raised up Phil to be men who said, we believe God is going to do great things here. And it was not easy. Everything from preaching and teaching God's word on a regular basis to working full-time jobs and then adding another full-time job to their workload and their family lives. I thank you for their wives who endured with them and their families who endured by their side. Lord, they, they sacrificed much 
In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said that death was at work in him, but life in you. And in some ways, death has been at work in these men. They have experienced the weakness and, and suffering, and yet life is at work here. You are building your church. You are strengthening your people. You are preserving this lighthouse for the gospel here in this community. And you have done so through the labors of many. But standing there at the helm have been these brothers. And Father, it is with joy and gratitude that I come alongside of them today. And we look forward, by your grace and for your glory, to serve you together for years to come. Because we believe you're going to build this church. You are going to do your work. You're going to change lives through the power of the gospel and the power of the word. We hold on to your promises and we take them to the bank because we know, we know they are true. And we, we believe you. And so, Father, we thank you for Pastor Ernie, for Pastor Doug, and for Pastor Phil and the work that you have done through them in this place, and the work that you will continue to do. And in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Love you, brothers. Thank you. Yeah. These are faithful brothers. God is doing good things. I just want to share with you quickly where my, about my family. Um, most of you have met my wife. This is Caitlin. There's four little boys that are running around. Um, so if they, you don't recognize them, they might belong to me. Um, we should be closing on both of our homes this week. So we should, we have, yeah, we have a home in Fair Oaks that should close this week and then a home really across the street here that should open or close this week as well. Um, if any of you are skilled at painting or anything like that, we'll have sign-up lists. You can come help us paint. Um, and so we are excited to be in this community. We believe that in order to love this church and be loved by this church, closeness helps. And so we're going to be here, um, and we're here to stay. And so we wanted to just come down here, and in the providence of God, we went from a, a kind of a conceptual conversation about buying and selling a home to having bought and sold a home in two weeks. Um, and so God is great, and he is good, and he has is, he is led that way kindly. Um, once we get settled in about two weeks, um, we're going to have sign-up lists, and I am formally inviting all of you over for a meal, all right? Um, so you are invited, and we're just going to have sign-up lists, and you just put your name on there. There'll be dozens of times where we're expecting you to come over, all right? But instead of trying to have 200 conversations, I'm having one big one, all right? <laughs> so uh, we'll have that out probably in two Sundays, and it'll just be here in the foyer, and it'll just say sign up. It'll be everything. I think we're doing Saturday mornings, Sunday afternoons, Thursday nights, and you just pick one that's good for you. If you want to pick a couple, that's fine. Um, we just want to get to know you and do life in this body of believers. And so we were going to do it starting today, but we didn't know we were going to move so fast. And so I was like, yeah, we should probably take a, take a few weeks to actually pack our stuff up. Because if you, if you came over now, uh, we've got boxes everywhere. And so Lord willing, within a few weeks, we'll be settled and can begin having you in our home and just doing life in the body of Christ, which is what God calls us to do. Amen. We're called to do life with one another, to love one another, and to help one another seek after Jesus. Well, this morning, we're going to turn to God's Word, and this is going to be probably the strangest sermon I ever preach here. I'm going to preach a sermon to myself, 
and I want you to listen in. I am going to preach a sermon on what it means to shepherd the flock of God. And I'm going to do that because I want all of you from the very, our very first day here at Elk Grove Bible to know what God has called me here to do. And this sermon is, is actually terrifying. As I studied and as I prepared this week, it was kind of frightening because I'm going to set the standard at what God's word says. And I just want to be honest, I don't meet it. Do you ever feel that way? Where God's word says, if you lust to pluck out your eye, well, we'd all be blind. Right? I mean, God sets the standard and and we're like, Lord, man, I need you. And so as I preach this, I'm actually going to plead with you to give grace to a fellow sinner. Because that's, that's what I need from you. And at the closing of this service, I'm going to give you cards that I've made that you can pray for your elders, pray for your pastors. Because we need you to pray for us. We need you to pray that we will do these things. And so this is going to be more of a family chat, if you will. We're going to go through the word and say, what does God call pastors to? Because as you know, you know as well as I do, that in our society today, the idea of pastoral ministry has a wide spectrum Corporate executives, CEOs, slick talkers, looking good on stage, knowing when to crack the right joke and make everybody laugh at the right time. Um, And you could just keep going with that list of all these things that the world says, this is what it means to be a pastor. And God's list is actually radically different and radically better. And so we want to talk today about what it means to shepherd the flock of God. And I want you to, to listen so that you know what God's word is calling me and the fellow elders here at this church to do. And I, you know many of these things because the men who have been pastoring already are doing these things. So this isn't going to be novel or new, but it's important that I think we start off our time together with a clear understanding of what it means to shepherd the flock of God. Because God takes it so seriously. There's a passage in the Old Testament that, that scares the stuff out of me. There are certain passages in the Bible that when you read them, you kind of just want to crawl into a hole and die because you think you'd be better off doing it that way. Listen to Ezekiel 34. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered on the face of the earth with no one to search for them, no one to seek after them. Seek after them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I am against the shepherds. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that is God's heart towards those who shepherd the flock of God. It is a a topic worth us addressing because God cares deeply about his people and we are his people. And so we must care about how God cares for his flock. The word to pastor is actually the Greek word for shepherd. It's the same word. And it's the old English word is change. It was to put out to pasture. 
and we've shortened it to the word pastor. All that means is that you are one who shepherds the flock of God. It's really basic and really simple. And that's what it, it, the calling is to care for, as a shepherd cares for sheep, to care for the flock of God. So if you have a Bible, and then I hope you do, go to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to be all over the Word of God this morning, but our primary text will be in 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me read verses 1 to 3 of 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock." There's one point this morning with six subpoints. okay? The one point is this, to shepherd the flock. What does a shepherd do? He is called to shepherd the flock of God. The command is clear in this passage. Verse two begins with it. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you. And the, the language there is really complicated, but the point is this. Shepherd the flock of God, which you're a part of. That's the point. You're one of God's flock and you're called the shepherd's God's flock. So shepherd... The people that are just like you. Sinners saved by a gracious and good God. That's the point. Shepherd the flock of which you're a part. So let's look at these six points together of what it means to shepherd the flock. And we see them in this text and all over the scriptures. Number one is to love genuinely. A shepherd loves genuinely. If a shepherd does not love his sheep, well, he should probably get a different job. If he hates his sheep, then he's not going to make a good shepherd. And so in order to shepherd the flock of God, it requires deep and enduring love. Now, as Christians, we're called to love one another. Absolutely. This is an outflow of that, that we are called to love one another, and therefore a shepherd is called to love the flock. Verse 2, exercise oversight in 1 Peter 5, not under compulsion, This isn't by force. This isn't like, oh, mom, I really got to eat my broccoli. That's That's not what shepherding is. It's not like, oh, God, my arm is twisted up behind my back and I hate this. Not under compulsion, but out of genuine love, you serve the flock of God. Jesus, the chief shepherd, Mark 10, 45 says, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He was the quintessential example of shepherding love, sacrificial love, serving love. And so the heart of a shepherd is, is to love the sheep. It's selfless. Isn't that the mark of genuine Christian love? Not what I get from you, but how I can love you, how I can care for you. And you know, we're really good at, at loving when we get something aren't we? I mean, when you give to me, I'm much more eager to love you back. But isn't it hard sometimes to love fellow believers? I mean, there's, there's really, if we went through this room, there's no reason that we should be here together except for Jesus. We have different political views. We have different diets. We have different exercise patterns. We have different careers. We have different opinions about everything, but we love Jesus and therefore we can love one another. 
And that's what shepherding love is, should example. It should be we love one another, we serve one another, not because I am forced to, but it's a privilege. The difference between duty and delight are massive. We don't love out of duty. We have been loved by a great God and therefore we love. It's a delight. I love John Piper's classic illustration on on buying flowers for your wife on Valentine's Day. And she says, why did you do it? And your response is, well, because I had to. It's Valentine's Day and my, my phone dinged with a reminder that on Valentine's Day, you buy flowers for the woman you love. Yeah, good luck, right? You're gonna get the flowers across your face. It's a duty. If, it's, if that's your response. But delight motivates action. Why did you do this for me? Because I adore you. Because I love you. And the call here to shepherd the flock is to love genuinely, and it's a serving love that is a joyful privilege. It's also a sacrificial love. It's a serving love, but it's a sacrificial love. Second Corinthians chapter 4. I reference this in my prayer for the fellow pastors here at Elk Grove Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is one of my favorite texts in all the scripture. Listen to these words, beginning in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Did you get, get, I mean, Paul is not trying to say, hey, look at me, I'm a great guy. He's simply saying to shepherd the flock, he's, this is what it's going to take. It's going to take, at times, feeling like you're crushed, like you're perplexed, like you're forsaken, like you're struck down, carrying in your body the marks of the death of the Savior. But do you see what he says in verse 12? It's worth it because of Jesus. That's his point. And so he says, shepherding love is sacrificial love, not because I am forced to, don't you sacrifice for your family? I mean, if I got up every day and went to work saying, oh, it's so dumb. I have to work to pay for my family's bills. If I just didn't have a family, man, I could work less and have more money. Well, that's a terrible husband, a terrible father. It's, it's a sacrifice to work 40, 50, 60 hour weeks. But you love them and you do it with joy for them. Because you want to care for them. That's, that's what he says is the shepherd. He says, you, you love the church. And so you joyfully sacrifice for them as our Savior sacrificed for us. And so Jesus is worth it. And therefore, there's a call to sacrificial love. And I know I'm preaching to my own heart this morning, but I hope you're picking up on the tones that apply to all of us. Because we are called to love one another in a self-sacrificial, self-dying manner that apart from Jesus is impossible. We, we don't do that apart from Jesus. We only love when we get. But in Jesus, we actually can love when we get nothing because it's for him and his name and his glory. 
And underneath this, this, this point of loving genuinely, we, we must say this, that shepherding love prays earnestly. I want you to know and I want you to pray for me that my love for you will move me to pray to pray for this church, that your pastors, your elders will pray for this flock. Jesus in John 17, it's actually the Lord's prayer is not not Matthew 5, the Lord's prayer is John 17. When Jesus cried out to his heavenly father the, the night before he was taken to be crucified, and you know what he prayed for? He prayed for his sheep. He prayed for his disciples. And then I love, I love what he prays for in verse 9. I'm not praying for the world, but I am going to pray for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I believe Jesus in John 17, 9 prays for all believers of all time, which includes us, who will follow him. He says, there's a world out there, but there are those who will be saved. I'm going to pray for them. And and he continues, as we know from Hebrews, he continues to live to intercede for us. He is the, the great high priest, the chief shepherd, and he prays for his sheep. He prays for his own. And so genuine love prays for the church. I want you to know that your pastors want to pray for you. Come to us and say, hey, can you pray for me? Pray for, pray for this trials that we're going through. Maybe they're financial. Maybe they're trials at work. Maybe they're in your marriage or your family or extended family. But that's what we do for one another. We pray for one another. And so our commitment is to pray for you. So under shepherding the flock, we, must, we are committed to loving the church. Well, secondly, we are committed to protecting the church faithfully. One of the essential job descriptions of the shepherd was to protect the flock. I mean, just think about it. Sheep need protection. Now, I kind of grew up a redneck, as I've shared with you before. We had a farm, we had animals, never had sheep, but I've been around them enough to know they're dumb. And I'm not saying you're dumb, okay? I'm saying the sheep are dumb, all right? Sheep, it's interesting that in the Bible, God calls all of us sheep. I wish you would have picked a different animal because the sheep aren't the brightest uh, 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 color in the box, tool in the shed. They're, they're struggling. If you don't lead a sheep to food, they won't eat, they will die. It's a true story. They won't find food. They will die. If you don't take them to water, they won't find it. They will die. Um, I've read stories of sheep literally being scared to death. Like they get frightened and they die. Like their heart stops. The shepherd protects the sheep. The shepherd looks out for the sheep at every turn. And this is just so unpopular in our day. Today, shepherds tell you things like your best life is now and every day is Friday. Shepherds say things that you should just think better thoughts about yourself and the power of positive thinking. They say that you're really a good person. You just need to find that inner goodness and then you'll get better one day. They build you up and butter you up to get things from you. They are peddlers of the truth. Shepherds are committed to protecting the flock. Remember David? Saul, can you do this? Well, I don't know. I don't know if I can, but I've killed a lion and a bear. This is not with, with, his, with his 45. This is with like his, like his stick. Like I protect my flock. No matter what is coming, I'll put my life between the flock and the, the enemy to protect them. 
That's, a, that's what a shepherd does. And there's two key ways a shepherd protects the flock. First, he, does, he protects the flock by confronting false teaching and false teachers. First Timothy 1. In Paul's encouragement to this young pastor, Timothy, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, right out of the chute, verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you, that's the reason why, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. In our culture of relativity, in our culture of tolerance at any cost, it is highly unpopular to call out false teaching. It's highly unpopular to call out false teachers. But the shepherd is called to lovingly and faithfully do just that. Because bad doctrine always leads to bad practice. And bad practice leads to denial of Jesus. Do you get that? Bad doctrine always leads to bad practice. And bad practice, according to Hebrews 3, will lead you to fall away from the living God. That's what Satan's ultimate end is. And so the shepherd is called to confront false teaching at every level. This may mean that your favorite devotional book, one of your shepherds one day says, that's heresy. Because last year's number one selling devotional book in America was false teaching. And that's what we are exposed to. When you listen to Christian radio, by and large, you're going to get false teaching. Both in what is preached and what is sung. And we need to call out false teaching. Because it will turn your heart away from the God you claim to be following. Now I want to be clear. This does not make me or your other pastors the theological police. We're not going to be trying to to say, hey, EGBC, we've got it all dialed in. We have no theological problems. We've got all the answers. Not at all. We have theological charity. There are areas we're going to say, hey, we can disagree and love Jesus together. But when a man calls the church office and says, you know, I don't believe in the Trinity, but I I want to come to the church. Hey, I'm sorry. We believe in in God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. Right? We, we don't deny those things. When somebody says, hey, you know what? I, I really believe that if you give me your money, God will make you rich. Sorry, you're a false teacher. And you have no place here. If you want to come and submit to God's word, that's fine. But we're not going to give you a platform of influence. So the shepherd guards the flock by calling out false teachers. Secondly, the shepherd guards the flock, protects the flock by lovingly and faithfully confronting sin. This again is is highly uncommon in our culture that champions these words out of context, don't judge me. One of the most abused passages of scripture. We are called to judge one another. We are called to honestly, full of grace and truth, say I'm walking with the Savior, striving to do so, and you should too. And your life is not in accordance with the glorious gospel of the only Son of God. And so to protect the flock is to confront sin, which means we speak the truth. Matthew 18, if, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Man, today, oh, you know what? It's not my job. That's going to be awkward. I don't want to do that. Somebody else will do it. I'll just pray for him. Yeah, pray and obey Jesus. 
He said, go talk to him. So we go to one another in love. And we, we confront sin. And if that brother listens, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take two or three with you. And now confront him again. And say, we love you. We long for you to follow Jesus. Please turn to him. And if he listens, you've gained your brother. But if he refuses, you take it to the entire church. And we tell the church and we say, we love this brother. We love this sister. We want you to love them too. We want you to encourage them to follow Jesus. That's what confronting sin looks like. It isn't a, let's embarrass somebody. It's not a, let's, let's just put their laundry list before the church. It is a, we deeply love. And if we deeply love, then we have to speak the truth. Can you imagine going to a doctor and let's say you or a loved one has cancer. And this doctor, the oncologist, says, oh, in his own mind, he says to himself, oh, man, this is going to really discourage this, this family. You know what? I'm just going to tell them they're fine. I'm just going to let them walk out thinking they're healthy. Uh, bad doctor. Malpractice lawsuits. Um, because he lets you believe a lie that you were okay. When we don't confront sin, we're letting each other believe the lie that we're okay. And we're not. And that's why we need one another. We need one another to speak truth into each other's lives. That's the call upon all believers. But it's also the call of the shepherd. And so we together, we lovingly confront sin. Again, I need to give you a warning. This is not meaning that I'm going to be your Jiminy Cricket. All right? We're not out to be each other's conscience police. We can disagree on a lot of things. But if, if, if I find out that you know what? This man is an angry father and verbally abusive to his family. Out of love for you, I must come to you. And if you find out that that's true of me, then you must come to me. Because that is what we are called to do. We do not tolerate sin in the flock. It will destroy the church. And so by God's grace, brothers and sisters, we long to protect the flock against false teaching and false practice and to follow Christ together. So a shepherd loves deeply and a shepherd protects faithfully. Number three, a shepherd leads humbly. This is a sobering point to preach. Because which one of us wants to stand up and say we've mastered humility? Oh yeah, I've got that down. Well, we know what your problem is. <laughs> but a shepherd is called to leave, lead humbly. Leadership is not authority, but leadership is influence. Christ-like leadership is leadership that looks like Jesus, and then as people look like Jesus, guess what? Christians follow that person. Because we follow our Savior. Jesus is this consummate example of humble leadership. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. One of the greatest texts on the humility of Christ in the scriptures. Philippians 2, verse 3 says this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which was yours in Christ Jesus. What mind? The mind of absolute humility who looked not out for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ. Christ was ultimately concerned with the interest of others. Was he not? It's why he came, it's why he died. He came for the interest of others, namely us. 
This is the posture of humility. Humility that says it's never about me. It's never about me. It's about Christ. It's about his glory. It's about loving his people. That's what the call of the shepherd is, to lead with humility. I can imagine a shepherd. The sheep are restless, so he doesn't get to sleep that night. Or his sleep is broken up. There's a storm coming, and he's got to move them or they're going to die. And so he's out moving his sheep when he'd rather be just taking a rest or maybe just having some me time. The call of the shepherd is to humbly serve the flock and to embrace the call that it's never about me. It's about Christ and his people. And that, I think, is clear in 1 Peter 5.3. If we go back to that text, that to lead with Christ-like influence is not domineering authority, but the character of Christ coming through the shepherds. In verse 3, beginning of the verse, he says this, not domineering over those in your charge. That reminds me a lot about Jesus in Matthew 20, when he says, do not lord it over them, like the Gentiles lorded over them, right? He confronted that head on, and he said, but in love, serve one another. And the last will be first, and he walked through all of that in Matthew chapter 20. Peter was most likely there for Matthew 20. And if he wasn't there for Matthew 20, he had three years with the Lord and he sure heard a lot about humble leadership because we know a lot about Peter and he needed it. So here he says, don't domineer over those in your charge. It's not domination, but servant-hearted leadership that loves and sacrifice and walks humbly with God. So my great longing is to not in any way lead from out front, to dominate as a corporate executive dominates, right? They make the decisions, you get the memo, and okay, all right, I guess that's what we're doing. But to lovingly, humbly, in life together, live as fellow believers and pursue Christ. That's what the shepherd is called to do. So by God's grace... We long to lead at EGBC in a way that demonstrates the humility of our Savior in every way. A shepherd loves and protects and leads and serves. And he goes after the flock. We have here to serve joyfully. Think of me of of Christ's parable of the 99 and the one. If a shepherd does not serve joyfully, he's going to be like, hey, you know what? It's better to have 99 than lose that guy. All right, so you know what? See you later. I've got, I've, got all, I've got all but one. I'm solid. And Jesus says, no, a, sh- a shepherd serves joyfully. Christ, the, the chief shepherd, is the greatest example of serving joyfully. A verse that I, I delight in is Hebrews 12, 2. He went to the cross with joy. Listen to these words. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, the shepherd of our souls, went to the cross with joy. There's nothing joyful about the cross. Nothing the greatest tool of torture ever invented in human history, second to none. And he goes to the cross with joy because there was something set before him, the exaltation of the Father and the redemption of his people. And so he went with joy. 
And so he, here we see that a, a shepherd serves with joy, even to the very end. It's not by force, but joyful privilege. Back in 1 Peter 5, the end of verse 2. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I eagerly do things I delight in. So do you. You eagerly do what you delight in, and you begrudgingly do what you hate. Oh, I gotta get out of bed again? Seriously? Not like it didn't happen yesterday, or the day before that, or the day before that, but you still hate it. Right? We, we, we don't delight in the things we hate. But he says here, do it willingly, do it eagerly, because it delights you. It's what gives you joy. It's what, because it's what consumes your affections. So Peter here calls upon the under-shepherds of Christ's church to do the same, not under compulsion, but with joyful willingness. And so here, the pastors at Elk Grove Bible, we long to shepherd the flock with joy. And so we've looked at loving the flock, protecting the flock, leading the flock, serving the flock. And now we get to our fifth point, that a shepherd is called to preach the word of God, is to preach the word of God. First Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Feel free to turn over there. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here again, Paul writing to Timothy, the new elder, the new pastor at the church in Ephesus. Paul is removed from the picture. He's writing to this young man who is pastoring a thriving church in Ephesus, but he's giving him instruction after instruction. And so in chapter four and verse two, he tells Timothy with no caveat and no equivocation, preach the word. Be ready in season and be ready out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So the pastor, the shepherds are called to preach the word. Here we see it's to feed the flock. To feed the flock. You know, Jeremiah 15, 16 talks about the word of God being like food. What did Jeremiah say? Your words, I found them and I ate them. I ate them. They were food for my soul. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 says the word of God is like rain that falls from heaven and it accomplishes its purpose. It grows what it intends to grow. Without the word, we shrivel up and we become anemic. anemic. Maybe you've noticed that in your Christian life. You remove yourself from the diet of this book in your own study and in your church and you will shrivel up. You cannot live apart from truth, just like if you tried to live for food without a week, for a, for a week. I don't like missing meals. I know some of you, you get so busy, you skip a meal and you don't think about it. That like never happens to me. I don't get too busy to miss meals uh, because in my busyness, I'm starving and I'm like, I got to do something, right? Um, because I, I need nourishment. Sadly, many believers are shriveling up and they're wondering what the problem is. They're actually blaming God because they think he's holding out on them and they don't go to the one source of nourishment and food that God has already given to them, his divine word. And so they're just shriveling on the vine like a rotting grape, wondering why everybody else is so healthy and they're a mess and they ignore this book. And so we must be fed 
with the word. And the sad reality is if you don't go to this book, you're going to go to cheap substitutes that won't work. So you're going to go to something else and say, oh, I read this great Joyce Meyer book. I just did that. You go somewhere else where somebody says you should ask God for his new and fresh word. This is his new and fresh word. There isn't another one. You go here and you, you say, God, I want you to do your work in my life through your word. This is the revealed and living and active word of God. We don't need a new word. We don't need another word. It's the complete and written revelation. And so you're going to go somewhere else and you're going to look for it. And it's not going to produce Christian maturity. It'll produce a scarecrow. It'll produce something that kind of has a resemblance of something Christian-like. But it's not going to be Jesus in you. Because you're pursuing false doctrine, thinking it's going to make you like Christ. Well, when we preach the word, not only do we feed the flock, but it addresses sin. 2 Timothy 4, in verse 2, he says this, preach the word, I've already said that, and then he says this, reprove and rebuke. Those two words have the idea of when you preach the word, you deal with sin. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that, that I love you, even though I don't know you that well. And there are going to be times where you're going to be ticked at me because we're going to deal with sin. And God's word doesn't let us get out of it. And you're going to think that I talked to your family member and I was preaching right at you. And I didn't. I, I don't do that. But God's word gets into your kitchen and he confronts your sin. And if God's word's not doing that, then it's not being faithfully proclaimed. The word is designed to confront us, right? Book of James tells us this. It's like a mirror. Can you imagine this morning getting out of bed, looking in the mirror and doing nothing and walking into church? It'd be like bad breath central. It'd be like, why is your hair going that way? Like, you didn't shave. Like, there's stuff going on your teeth. I mean, like, you know what? I can buy you a toothbrush. I mean, you, no, it's, it's, you don't do that. The mirror exposes what happened over the last eight hours. And so you fix it. The word of God is that mirror, and we hold it up and we say, oh, Lord, oh, I'm not what I should be. Would you change me? Would you make me like your son? And if that's not happening, then God's word is not being the mirror's designed to be. And so there's going to be times you're like, man, we talk a lot about sin. Yeah, because we sin all the time. And we got a real problem. And we don't love one another by ignoring the problem. But we say, well, God's word is clear. And what's beautiful is that not only does he talk about sin, but he gives hope for broken sinners like us. So we're going to talk about sin, and then we're going to go to the gospel and say, look at the hope that God gives us. Because yeah, you're right, we're broken. We struggle. We get angry. We, we lose our tempers. We, our marriages struggle. Our workplace struggles. I'm not the best parent. I, yeah, tell me about it. So it confronts us and it gives us hope all at the same time. And so we're going to deal with sin. That's rebuke and, and reprove. And then he says to exhort with complete patience and teaching. Here he's gonna, he says that the word is designed to encourage and equip. We're, I, I pray that this church never becomes a, a church with a theological big head. You ever see those like caricatures? Like you get the state fair, like this tiny little body and the giant head. And it looks like the head's about to fall off. You know, there's a lot of churches when we talk about preaching the word, 
what they end up doing is being big heads that think it's their job to tell everybody else in the Christian world why they're right and you're wrong. Now I pray, I really mean this, I pray that God uses his word to build this church to a mature church, just more and more mature in in depth and in breadth, that God would build this church to be a healthy, thriving, continually growing church. He is doing that and he will continue to do that. But oh, may we never think that, oh yeah, our theology's right. It's not about that. It's to move us to practice. That's to exhort That's what exhortation is. To exhort is to be given the right information and then be told how to use it and your life changes. And so you'd come out of Sunday mornings and say, oh Lord, I have been exhorted. We have gazed into your word and I know how to take my life this week and live for Jesus. I've been built up in my most holy faith. And so the call of the shepherd is to feed the flock with the word which confronts sin and encourages us to walk with Christ. But I want you to know that the word also must be proclaimed in this way. We preach Christ. We preach Christ. Colossians 1, verse 29. Let's let's try verse 28. Him we proclaim. That's Jesus. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone. Do you know how it finishes? Mature in Christ. Him we proclaim. It's always been about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. And so we proclaim him. Why? Because when he's proclaimed, it builds maturity in his people. Because we're gazing at his glory. And as you gaze upon his glory, you're transformed by his glory. It's impossible to look at Jesus and not be transformed by Jesus. And so we gaze at him and we become like him. Just like some of you are going to go home and you're going to watch football and you've got jerseys and you've got stuff on your walls, you gaze at that and you become like it. It it really do. Your affections come out. What you gaze at changes you. We gaze at Jesus and guess what? Oh, you're looking more like the Savior. One of the greatest compliments my wife ever paid me was on a Sunday morning. And I don't tell the story to build, my up, build me up. I tell the story to show God's grace in a broken sinner. Um, I, was, we were, I, I was making a latte for her and, uh, and I turned and I, I literally did something. I don't know what I did, but I threw the hot milk everywhere. I mean like everywhere. It's under the fridge. It's all over the cabinets. I mean, it has splattered the entire kitchen. And we just start laughing. And afterwards, she said, you know, Justin, I just want to encourage you There was a time that you would have been angry at that. But I can see grace in you. Wow, God, you're working in me. Oh, that's just cool. Like now, I still struggle with anger, okay? I've not mastered that, all right? Um, I thought I was patient, then I got a dog. I thought I was patient, then I had kids. Um, So I I get it. I got to work on it. But is that what should happen in our lives? That those close to us begin to say, you know, God's at work in you. We can see it. Praise God, he's transforming you because we're gazing at the Savior. We preach Christ. The word of God has one theme. His name is Jesus. It's got one end. His name is Jesus. And so we're magnifying the Savior at every turn because the grace that is found to save us is in Jesus and the grace that's found to transform us is in Jesus. And so we're gonna go back to him all the time. And I pray by God's grace, you'll see Christ everywhere. 
because it's all pointing to him. So brothers and sisters, the call to the shepherd is to preach the word of God, to preach it expositionally. You should not care what I think about this book. You should care what God thinks about this book. You're actually called to discern my teaching. And if I'm ever out of step with this book, it's your job to come to me and say, you know, you need, I'm not sure that's faithful to the word. Let's talk about it. I want you to do that. I'm inviting you to do that because that's what believers do. This isn't my opinion on this book. This isn't, I read a cool commentary. I'm going to tell you about it. This is, I labor to say, I believe that this is what God's designed intention is for this book. And if I'm off, I need to know. And so we want to we know God's words, not some pastors, not some guru, but God's words. So we preach the word of God without apology because it's what we need for all of life and all of godliness. It's interesting. Peter wrote these words, right? First Peter 5. It was Peter, the apostle, who denied Jesus, that guy, okay? Remember when he denied Jesus and Jesus came to him and confronted him? In John 21. And he said to him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. What was Christ's response? Feed my sheep. Do you know it's the exact same words in 1 Peter 5? And you know what? I guarantee you Peter knew what he was doing. Because he never forgot that moment. So Peter was told by the Savior, feed my sheep, Peter. And then he says, at the end of his life, when 1 Peter is written, he says, all who are called by God to shepherd the flock have one great aim, and it's what Jesus said to me. It was feed my sheep. So we go to the word, and we must be fed. So we preach the word of God. Well, men and women, we've looked at shepherding loves, shepherding protects, shepherding leaves, shepherding serves, shepherding preaches the word. And the final call to the shepherd is one that I hesitate even to bring up because of James chapter three. James chapter three, verse one says this, not many should become teachers, brothers, for you know those who are teaching or for those who teach will be judged with greater judgment. Can I, okay, I just, can you just hear me out? Not many of you brothers should become engineers. For you know that those who are engineers will be judged with greater judgment. How are you feeling about your job? Not many of you should be in fill in the blank because you're going to be judged more by God. And that's again one of those, when, when I began to wrestle with God's call upon my life to pastor and shepherd and preach the word, I was like, Lord, really? Because I know what James 3 says. And I don't want that. I, I really don't want that, God. I, I spent months reading the pastoral epistles. First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus. Lord, really? Are you, are you calling me to this? Because I'm not exceptional. I'm pretty normal. I do I, I, same sin battles that every human being faces, I face. Lord, really? This is what you've called me to do? And I think the stricter judgment is because of this. If your life discredits the message, you bring shame on the Savior. That's terrifying. He says, not many of you should teach this because when you hold up this book and say, God says this is how you should live your life, your life can discredit it. Can I ask you a question, men and women? How many of you 
have been disenchanted because of people that you looked up to who didn't follow Jesus. They said, follow me as I follow Christ, but what they were actually doing was running from him. And when it hit the fan, you just said, really? How many of you know people who have said, I'm never going to try Christianity again because I saw too much hypocrisy? I saw people who said one thing and lived another way, and I'm done. And James 3 says, don't become a teacher because there's stricter judgment because if your life discredits the message, you will bring shame and reproach on the name of the Savior. And so I'm going to walk through this briefly as we conclude. But I want you to know that I'm not preaching this because I've arrived. I'm preaching this because you must know what God says. And so here he says, shepherd the flock. And in verse five of 1 Peter, he says that you are to be an example to the believers. He says, you're an example to the believers. And that's where I think Peter understands this point. Number six is to live blamelessly. The word in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, is that an elder, an overseer, a pastor, he must be, what is the word, you know it? Above reproach. The word above reproach is an interesting Greek word. It's essentially the idea of having no handles. It was used of a teapot or a, or a jug that you didn't have a handle on the jug. And the point is, there was nothing to hold on to. You would not be able to look at the life of an elder or a pastor and say, Jesus hasn't changed them there. The message of the cross doesn't work there. Oh, he preaches like Christ is sufficient. He preaches like grace is enough. But when it comes to his life, God doesn't work. It's a handle. And so the word blameless is to have no handles that nobody could hold on and say, yeah, I don't know. All that's just good talking, but it doesn't really work. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's list is interesting. He says that if anybody wants to be an overseer, the idea of elder, pastor, he must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with all conceit and and will fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be thought well of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace." into a snare of the devil. So my striving is to walk in blamelessness. Is to walk in such a way as all of the pastors, elders here would would agree with. That the name of Christ would not be smeared. That there would not be reproach upon the Savior. You know what's interesting? I actually believe that 1 Timothy 3 is the list of godly character that every Christian should aspire to. Every Christian should aspire to that list. But brothers and sisters, I'm going to share this with a, a sober heart. If I don't match up to that list, if, if our pastors don't match up to that list, then we should not be in that position. You should ask me to leave. Leave. 
because this is not negotiable. God says this is the call of God. A pastor must live in such a way that is blameless. Now, I need to caveat that. I need you to help me walk with Christ. Hebrews 10 says that we push one another to love and good works. We provoke one another to love and good works. So you're gonna, you're gonna live life with me and my family. We're gonna be in the lives of, of, of this church as best as we possibly can. We strive to live lives that are totally open books. We really long to hide nothing, to live with absolute integrity. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, that there is nothing to hide which means you're gonna come alongside me and say, brother, I think you can be more faithful here. The point of 1 Timothy 3 is not perfection. It's there's no rebellion in my heart that says, I don't care. I don't care. I don't wanna hear from you. I'm fine. The response of the shepherd is, oh, thank you. Thank you, you're right. I wanna be more like Jesus. I wanna pursue him. And so I need you to do the very things that we're called to do to all this church, to one another, each other, that we provoke each other to love and good works. First Timothy 4 and 4.12. Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth. And I recognize that I'm quite young. He says this, set the believers an example. And here's what I want to put before you today. I believe the call of 1 Timothy 3 to live blamelessly is that you will be able to say, I can follow the pastors and elders of my church as they follow Jesus. That's the point. I want to follow Jesus. And I hope and pray that you could look and say, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus like that. But guess what? I'm just like the rest of us. So there's going to be ways that I'm not following Jesus. So I'm not going to stand here and say, hey, follow me. I'm not Moses. I'm not a prophet. Right? We're, we're all in this road of sanctification together. But like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what we should be aspiring for all of us. That you could say to the person next to you at EGBC, we're fighting for Jesus together. Let's, let's mutually encourage one another. And there's gonna be areas that I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna say, man, I love the way you lead your family. Can I follow you as you follow Christ? And there's gonna be ways you're gonna say, Pastor Justin, I love the way you do this. Can I follow you as you follow Christ? That's the goal of the shepherd, to walk blamelessly. The flock would see Christ. At the end of the day, it's not about me or any of the other pastors and elders here. It's about you seeing Christ. And the message of the cross that is proclaimed being backed up by lives lived in the glory of God. That you can say, he doesn't just say that, but we see Christ transforming him. That the message of the cross is not smeared. I told you when I started, this would be a strange sermon. A sermon where, like a pole vaulter, which I don't pole vault, I'm, I'm far too short to pole vault. And I weigh far too much to pole vault. But a pole vaulter has a standard. This would be like me 
setting the standard at the Olympic level. I think it's close to 17 feet. And say, okay, Justin, go ahead. Good luck. But for the grace of God. So this morning, I wanted to take us through the scriptures and say, here's the standard. Here's what God called shepherds to be. Not so that you can sit in judgment over me for my failures. But that you can know this is what I strive after. And I am pleading with you to give grace. As we will strive to give grace to one another. And say, oh Lord, thank you for exposing sin. Help us to pursue Christ more faithfully, more fully. As we live our lives out for the glory of Christ. So I plead with you, don't, don't be looking for areas to say, oh, he blew that one to say we're praying that these things would be true. And so I've asked the ushers to hand out a prayer card that I made. It's a prayer card for the whole church, so everybody take one. And this, on this prayer card, I, get, I listed 1 Thessalonians 5. Yeah, right now, go ahead, pass them out. I, I listed on here seven prayer requests. They're the seven points from this morning. I want you to take it. I want you to put it in your Bible or put it on your fridge. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.1. Paul simply said, brothers, pray for us. I love that. Here's the apostle Paul. He's like the Christian Michael Jordan. I mean, the guy is the, guy is the greatest apostle in many ways. He, he started like most of the New Testament churches. He wrote a third of the New Testament. And he says, would you pray for me? I need you to pray for me. And so, I'm, I'm giving you this this morning because I'm going to beg you to pray for me. Pray for all of your pastors. Pray for all of your elders. Pray that we would shepherd the flock. Pray that we would not love ourselves, but love the flock. Pray that we would be committed to protecting the flock even when we don't want to. Pray that we would lead with humility and that God would expose the pride that's in our hearts and he would enable us to lead with Christ-like humility. Pray that we would serve with joy. That it would not be under compulsion or by necessity or by like force, but with joyful serving the flock. Pray that we would preach the word and only the word. And that we would till the day Jesus calls us home would preach the whole counsel of God. And pray that by the grace of God found in Jesus, we will live blameless lives so that the message of the cross is never discredited in any way. That's what we need you to do. So I, I wanted you to take this home and don't file it in the recycle drawer. I want you to take it and I want you to be committed to praying for your pastors and your elders. This is what we long for you to do for us. Well, let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning. We have a profound sense of gratitude for all that you're doing here at EGBC. You just, you chose to have all the stars aligned this week in many ways. And we're rejoicing. But Father, we also are sobered this morning by your word. 
my own heart is incredibly sobered because you have called me and Pastor Ernie and Pastor Doug and Pastor Phil to shepherd the flock of God. To shepherd in such a way that is faithful to you and your word. And Father, would you strengthen us? Would you give us the grace for this impossible task? I'm reminded of David in the Psalms. He said, you know our frame. You know that we're dust. You know that we can't do this. And yet I know that Titus 2 is clear. The grace of God that saves us is the grace of God that transforms us. Saving grace is equipping grace is enduring grace. And so you will give fully sufficient grace for the task. And we trust that you will do great and mighty things which we could never even ask or think here. So to the one who alone is worthy and who alone is sovereign and who is good and gracious and abundant in steadfast love, we praise you. It's in his name. Amen.